Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is Monday, the 6th of June. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, Wow. Um, Where to begin today? I think that is going to be a question on the hearts and minds of many people. There is a lot of confusion in the culture today. But God is not a God of confusion. There's a lot of chaos in the culture today. God is not a God of chaos. Um, There is a lot of anger and bitterness and accusation in the world today. But God is a God of mercy and peace and joy and love and beauty and goodness and truth. God is a God of clarity and certainty and ordered reality. So let me begin here this morning. Do you remember when Adam named the animals? God created everything and everything was good, but nothing yet had a name. And so Adam names the animals. Now, he didn't just name the animals. He named, like, literally the birds and the bees. So I'm sure that, like me, you remember learning those categories. Birds, animals, fish, amphibians, reptiles, insects, plants, right? Things were in their categories with their kind what if I told you that now, as soon as I tell you that it happened in California, I, I, I can hear your eyes rolling. So, yes, you just rolled your eyes out loud. But what if I told you that in California, a bumblebee is now legally a fish? I know. Birds and bees. Nope. Apparently now birds and fish. No bees anymore. Bees are now fish. The bumblebee is now a fish under California law. A California court ruled uh that in order to protect certain kinds of bumblebees and in order to get them on the endangered species list, um, they had to be recategorized because, after all, that endangered species list only includes birds, mammals, fish, amphibians, reptiles, and plants, not bees or any other bugs. So um, the Fish and Game Commission... And the Almond Alliance of California were the two uh, entities in court. Um, And the bees prevailed as fish. And now, I know, it's just going to breed more confusion in a culture that's already confused. So um, the bumblebee, now a terrestrial invertebrate, falls within the definition of a fish. Mm -hmm. So instead of changing the law, they changed the categorization of the bumblebee, now considering it a fish. Now, while we're at it, confusion related to the culture, categorizing things, or actually in this case, catechizing. Let's use that term. While we're on the subject of confusion, I want you to consider how children are being catechized during this Pride Month, this so-called Pride Month. A Dallas bar, yes, you heard me right, a 21 and over Dallas bar 
in particular a drag bar named Mr. Misters, hosted an event on Saturday called Drag the Kids to Pride. It was a drag show from 11 to 2. Um, It featured drag performances. It was offered as, quote-unquote, family-friendly. It invited child participation on stage on the runway. Children were also tipping performers with $1 bills. And, And if that's not grooming, I don't know what is. If that's not catechizing children, uh, I don't know what is. So, um, if your attention was rightly drawn this morning to a number of shootings across the country, to the 21 funerals in Uvalde, Texas that are still going on, to the testimony of actually the first man that was shot at, one of the first two men that was shot at in Uvalde, Texas, uh, were two employees of the funeral home that's immediately across the street from um, from the uh, Robb Elementary School. They heard the truck crash, and so they came outside to render aid. And as they started to cross the street to render aid, a man started shooting at them. They returned to the funeral home to call 911. Meanwhile, um, that man, as we now know, proceeded into the school and was inside for more than an hour. He took the lives of 19 children and two teachers. Maybe your attention this morning is on our brothers and sisters in Christ in Nigeria, where an attack on a Catholic church Sunday morning has resulted in the death of at least 50 people, many of them children, that assailant using both firearms and explosives. We live in grievous days, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope, and we are not a people trapped in confusion. We're going to talk about the beauty and the truth of the gospel next with Dean and Sarah from City Church Tallahassee. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dean and Sarah is the pastor of City Church Tallahassee. He is also a friend and an author. We're going to talk today about his book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. But Dean, I'd love to start off our conversation this morning about the um, shooting in the parking lot of the church in Ames, Iowa, because I know you have a connection there. So thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks, Carmen. Good to be with you. Uh, You're right about the times we are in right now. Uh, but what an opportunity for Christians, what an opportunity for the church, you know, to let our light shine during such a difficult time. Uh, yeah, Ames, Iowa, Cornerstone Church, an amazing church, planting churches all across the country in college towns, uh, good friends of ours at City Church, just just so sad. Um, you know, the pastor said it was, you know, the worst day of his life, you know, to, to, and I can't imagine those parents mm. went through getting that phone call, you know, back in their hometown about their, you know, their their daughters, uh, just just truly a sad, awful act. So for those of you who are listening and um, not familiar with this particular storyline, two young women uh, in Ames, Iowa, were headed into the Cornerstone um, Church to attend a college Bible study. Let me tell you um, just briefly about these two young women. Both of their families have released statements about them. Um, Eden Monong's family talked about Eden being unique and gifted in her ability to be both strong and tender, creative and conservative. She was unmatched in her generosity and empathy. Um, They talk about her love of God, uh, talking about her being intellectually gifted, articulate, and confident. 
Um, they said in less than 20 minutes she could do farm chores, write a poem, all while drinking uh, eggs. Well, anyway, you know, they go on and on. These people talk about their daughters in beautiful ways. Eden was a beautiful garden that we were lucky enough to watch grow. I just think about that, Dean, and I, I think about um, this young woman, Eden, this other young woman, Vivian Flores. Her family wrote, it's with heaviest of hearts that our family honors the life of our vivacious Vivian, she was one of the good ones, a devout Christian, lover of music and dancing, beloved daughter, sister, and friend. They go on, um, you know, they just talk about these young women. And I want to highlight that today because these families are giving testimony in the midst of unimaginable grief and loss. They are giving testimony to the goodness of God um, and and the rightness of faith uh, in, in the realities of the grief of the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also the way that Cornerstone has has handled this as well and, and just rallied together in prayer and in hope, also to, in grieving. Uh, the Gospel Coalition wrote a great article about uh, just about everything that happened and how Cornerstone has responded. Yes, I think our posture right now is just to grieve and pray with those families. Uh, just just so sad, you know, but I'm so thankful at the same time uh, for the testimony of those families that are pointing people to Christ and and, and are trying to, uh, and then are honoring their daughters at the same time. Just such a sad and just an evil act. Yeah, I think the testimony, you know, the opportunity of the church, right, in the midst of this. Um, Definitely. We, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. But I do think, you know, Dean, there's often the question of how do we genuinely help people acknowledge the sin reality that's at the root of all of this? I think there are so many things that we would like to blame that we imagine we might have a policy solution to, um, that we might be able to come up with an answer, you know, mental health or, um, you know, dads in homes or, I mean, the list is long, right? The things that we think we might do to resolve the issues in our culture, but at the root of all of it is sin. Oh, definitely. And we have to, as Christians, be willing in this age especially uh, to think in nuance when it's necessary so are there factors? Of course there are. Uh, are, are there preventative measures? Maybe. Uh, but it all comes down to the fact that we are in a broken, broken world. And with that is going to come different kinds of derangement. On top of that, even more evil, wickedness. Uh, and those are realities until Jesus comes back. It doesn't mean we sit here passively and just go, well, the world's evil. It is what it is. That's not what we do either. But we acknowledge that both are true. But at the same time, you can have the greatest policies in the history of the world, uh, but sin is still sin and evil is still evil, and it's still going to act in different ways. We have to be clear about that as Christians, that before anything, it's a sin problem, before anything else. And then the other things come into play and other conversations we can have, sure, and I hope that just kind of sober-minded people can have good conversations, and, and, and that, that's hopefully what we trust our elected officials to do, and we can lobby to them and make our concerns known to them or whatever it might be. But as Christians, first and foremost, we have to be clear that this is a sin problem, a sin. And some, you know what it is, Carmen? I think sometimes we just take sin so lightly that we see it as just a mistake. You're like, oh, you know, I just made a mistake. I'll just kind of confess my sins. No, like sin at its root is wicked and evil. Like it is complete rebellion against the created order and against God. And that's what it is before anything else. And I'm, I appreciate you saying that because we have to be clear there before anything. What these families experience was sin and evil and wickedness uh, towards their family. And, and that's what, and the church as well experienced that. That's, that's what this is. And the opportunity to bear witness to the resurrection hope of Jesus in the midst of that and the answer to um, you know, the answer to the reality of sin and the grief we have 
um, for those who are dead in sin, um, ultimately dead in sin, but those who are dead in sin right now. And that's the, you know, like that's the compelling call of the gospel to our generation. We're talking with Dean and Sarah. He is the pastor of City Church Tallahassee. He's also an author. His latest book is Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. We're going to turn our attention to that during this so-called LGBTQ plus Pride Month. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Pastor Dean and Sarah. The book is Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. And yes, we've got copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Dean, take us into the content. Um, we're going to talk about purity in the midst of a day and time that is certainly um, not interested in purity and definitely um, just very openly anti-purity culture. Oh, yeah, that's the world we are in. First of all, I want to give a quick congratulations to bees. A big day for them yesterday. I uh, get to be fish and bees. Pretty impressive. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, but that... Great, great, uh, your birds, and, and, your birds and bees talk is now going to have to be birds and bees that are now fish talk. It's oh, a yeah, challenge. <laughs> they just made it really complicated for us parents. I'm trying to have conversations. Uh, but that type of thing, as silly as it is, really is telling uh, because it shows just what has happened to any concept of truth. And what's happened to the purity movement is you have kind of two things happening. One, some maybe missteps uh, back in the 90s by what's called purity culture in terms of maybe some of the approach uh, it seemed a little pharisaical, a little uh, maybe kind of guilt and shame driven, uh, has caused people to have angst towards any conversation about purity. And the other is just a complete rebellion against God that's being celebrated. Uh, so what's happening is we're seeing Christians kind of shrink down and, and be silent or retreat concerning this, when the reality is no matter what's happening in our culture, no matter what maybe the church has maybe, maybe done wrong in the past. It doesn't change the fact that God has a clear design for sexuality. Uh, the fact that marriage and sex is between a man and a woman who are married, a husband and a wife, and just in that context only, is as clear in the scriptures as any other truth we believe. Uh, so here's what I want to encourage Christians with this morning. If we believe that Jesus rose from the grave and we can trust that, we can also believe Jesus when he defined marriage clearly uh, back to Genesis as a historical event uh, that's between a man and a woman and that God has made you know, the whole idea of sex and the practice of sex for his glory and for our good. And it's not our, it's not our right to tamper with that, to change that, uh, simply because culture and corporate America and everything else is screaming uh, for us mm -hmm. to do so. So I want to encourage Christians to be unashamed of God's design and believe in it as much as you believe it. And it's, it's as clear as Jesus walking on water, as the, the Red Sea being parted. It is as clear in the scripture as anything else you believe. So to hold fast and hold strong to that as believers. The world tries to convince us otherwise, um, and the world finds all kinds of opportunity to criticize what the church teaches because of the behavior of some in the church. It's not lost on me that you and I um, find it challenging to talk about the goodness of God, his design for sexuality, um, the sanctity of the marriage bed, the, the 
particular gift that sex is, as Southern Baptist, talking about this publicly right now is a challenge. It is. And we're also seeing what happens when even in the worst situations, like an abuse situation, when you take what God has made and take it outside of his design, it's a wrecking Mm -hmm. ball. Right. And it can be used in a, in a predator kind of fashion. Uh, so it is harder right now as Southern Baptists to talk about this, especially because we're dealing with an abuse crisis uh, right now uh, in some of our uh, structures and in our, some of our churches. And the reality is that it all goes back once again to when God's design is violated, even the most extreme ways. There's going to be tremendous hurt and tremendous pain, and it's our job now to recover and pursue this, like to, to not abandon God's design as a result of this, but to advocate for it all the more, you know, as exactly what it is that he has given us, not just for his glory, which is most important, but for our good. Like this is where it, it, doing things God's way is how also you prevent things such as hurt and pain and abuse uh, and uh, betrayal. And it's like, like God knew what he was doing uh, when he created sex. And yes, marriage is more than sex, obviously, but it's definitely not less than that. Uh, God knew what he was doing and gave this to us, one, for his creative design, uh, for his glory to be made known, to point us ultimately to the gospel, that the union, the one flesh union of a husband and a wife is one that is going to be a visible portrait that points us to our union, our oneness with Christ. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5. And it's also for our good. Uh, so doing things God's way, once again, uh, is the way which we prevent so many of the brokenness we see in our culture as a result of this. So for Southern Baptists, it's, it's not time to talk about God's design less, but talk about God's design more, uh, because that is what he has given us for our good and for his glory. Yeah, I think there's always such a temptation, Dean, to run away from um, the truth because, you know, we've been caught not living up to it or into it. But that's actually the time to run to the truth, right? I mean, I thank God that that Peter didn't run away from the truth when Jesus gave him the opportunity to be redeemed after um, denying him three times. I'm, you know, I'm so thankful that, you know, Peter sat there and had breakfast on the beach and um, and was restored and forgiven, right? Returned to the truth. So maybe we could think about this as a return to the truth, as a return to the elevation of purity, um, the elevation of the truth in a culture of lies. The book is pure. The sections of the book um, set the stage. Uh, they talk about living as exiles in a sex-crazed world. And then where do we go from here? Um, Dean and Sarah is is the author. It is excellent. It's very accessible. It's a great resource for pastors as well as um, for you and I as lay people. Wonderful equipping for parents. If you've been trying to figure out, like, how do I talk with my child about God's good design um, for gender and sexuality in the midst of a sex-crazed culture, this is your book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. We are giving away copies today. Text the word um, book to 877-933-2484. Um, Dean, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes here um, to to give us, a, you know, like a pastoral or dad walk-off, whichever one you want, um, because part of this is how do we encourage our children to believe and walk in something that many people in our generation have not publicly believed nor walked in? I think if you, if when it comes to your children, if uh, you think maybe 
Uh, it's time to have the conversation uh, about uh, sexuality. Uh, maybe you're even too late. <laughs> so it's time to have the conversations earlier. I don't mean with a four-year-old, uh, but there are appropriate conversations to have with a four-year-old. Simple things uh, such as how God has made us. You don't have to get into sexuality conversations, but it's how God has made us different as boys and girls and made us distinct and what that means. And then to keep that kind of conversation going as a regular, non-weird, a uh, sort of part of your family conversation of discipleship and just growth. Uh, and I think that we have to, over and over again, celebrate and point to strong marriages uh, that, that, you know, that kids have this confidence. I think this is such a great time uh, in our culture for kids to have confidence in their mom and dad's marriage, right? That they are strong. This is the model. This is how it's supposed to be. And then when you see right now everything in our culture from rainbow flags to every corporation celebrating it to two men kissing on a commercial to rainbow cover, colored Oreos at the, at the grocery store, to what Target is doing with their displays of pride, uh, that it's an opportunity not to cover our kids' eyes, but to have conversations about this and not to allow it to be normal. Uh, this is not normal. This is a rebellion against creation. We can't pretend it's normal. Uh, so to be able to have conversation with kids about why this is abnormal, why this is not what God has made, uh, and then also to talk about what it looks like now to live as lights, to be compassionate, but also not to compromise uh, during this time. Like You can believe that all people have worth and that all people have dignity because we're all made in the image of God and at the exact same time be outraged by all the things you see happening this month uh, as a result of pride. Uh, I, I really think that we need to be clear. And also pride's kind of setting us up because it's everywhere. They're kind of throwing us a softball to be able to have conversations with our kids because you can't avoid it. It's everywhere you look right now. Uh, so my encouragement to parents right now in the context of all we're seeing is to have clear conversations about God's design, be unashamed of it. Again, it is as clear in the Bible as anything else we believe as Christians, and to not allow what's happening right now to be viewed as normal or another option, uh, but actually to show our children that this is not normal. This is not God's design. Uh, we're not supposed to just go on with our daily lives like this is some other option, uh, but to appoint them ultimately to Christ and the order that God has given us for his glory and for our good. So my whole point is, parents, open your mouth and have conversations and use all the things happening in our culture to set you up for an, a clear conversation about what God has made. Dean and Sarah dives into the big picture of God's design for men and women regarding sexuality. This book seeks to reclaim um, very clear teaching from the scriptures and a call to sexual purity. The book is pure, why the Bible's plan for sexuality isn't outdated, irrelevant, or oppressive. Dean, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Carmen. Thank you. Yeah, till the next time. That's Dean and Sarah. You can find them at City Church Tallahassee. And yes, we're giving away books. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. All righty. What else in the world is going on in the world? Well, the January 6th commission is going to start its public hearings. We're also continuing uh, our conversation about um, what is happening in terms of the confidence that people across the country have in terms of police not showing up at all or when they show up not intervening. Yep, we're going to have both of those conversations with Daniel Bennett next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen.
All right, we're returning to our conversation with Daniel Bennett. Um, you can find Daniel on Twitter at Daniel R. Ben, B-E-N-N. Um, Daniel, the Supreme Court, we uh, certainly expect, because it is a Monday in June, we expect the Supreme Court at 10 a.m. Eastern today to release some of its um, uh, some of its orders from its June 2nd conference and opinions in, in cases that have been argued in the current term. Um, so I don't know which cases we're going to hear about today, but I'd love for you to reflect with us on the Supreme Court blocking a Texas social media law um, from taking effect and the dissent in particular by Justice Alito, because I, I found that interesting. Yeah, so just to just to recap here, the uh, the, the, the law in question involved uh, essentially requiring social media companies operating in Texas, which is really any social media company in the United States, uh, basically heightening the threshold for uh, what, what the law would consider to be banning or censoring uh, viewpoints, uh, particularly, and, and it doesn't specify uh, ideological viewpoints, but the, the purpose behind it was, was almost certainly directed towards conservative viewpoints. Um, with Twitter and Facebook uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, uh, banning or deplatforming or whatever you want to call it, uh, conservative voices on the website. And it would basically make those sites uh, more accountable uh, in, in censoring uh, those voices. The Supreme Court uh, allowed uh, the, uh, the, uh, the injunction against the law to continue. Uh, while the case proceeds through the courts, the, the, it's a very slow-moving process <laughs> to, to challenge a law like this. And so often there's two stages, right? There's the stage of uh, can the law continue to be blocked while the legal process moves on, or uh, should the law be allowed to remain uh, open and, and I guess, functional while the case continues? And so the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, the injunction against the law should stand. Like you said, though, Justice Alito was among... Uh, the group of dissenting justices who argued that uh, the law should uh, be, uh, I guess, allowed to, to 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 remain in place while the while the legal battle continues, signaling perhaps that he is maybe sympathetic to the purposes of the law. So I think it's um, I think maybe just important to note, like this is not fully resolved um, in no. terms of the conversation that the court is having in relationship to this. Um, but it it's it is social media is the place where many, many people engage and relate to one another and certainly um, post their opinions um, related to different things. And it, it is important, I think, to get to the place where we understand what social media is and what's happening there and who's posting and what they're posting. Um, and if it's it's going to be, you know, the new public square then um, we're going to have to put up with people posting things there that are factually inaccurate um, and certainly positionally inconsistent with where we are. Um, and I guess we're going to hold out hope that others are going to allow us to continue to post that which they consider factually inaccurate and oppositional to their worldview. Because as a Christian, like I know I say things in social media that other people think are factually inaccurate and right do not align with their worldview. So that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. And I, I really, this, this is an issue that, that brings out a lot of tensions in me personally. So 
you know, in thinking about the legal requirements, at least historically, the First Amendment has has, has been a prohibition uh, on government. It's been a restriction on government uh, prohibiting and, and regulating people's speech and activities. And so at a fundamental level, I'm skeptical of applying these things to private entities like social media corporations and social media companies. Mm. Um, but you're right that the landscape has changed so significantly over the past 15, 20 years, uh, almost 20 years since the advent of, of, of Facebook or MySpace, if we want to go back that far, that is this essentially the new world that we're living in? And do we have to adapt accordingly in terms of these regulations? And so on a technical legal interpretive level, the First Amendment obviously only applies to government. Uh, but has the landscape changed enough for courts and legal bodies to say, like you said, look, the public square is just different now and we have to pivot uh, accordingly to make sure that these voices are protected, that perspectives are not silenced, that people are not discriminated against on the basis of their viewpoints. And so I'm, I'm, there's a tension there in my thinking that I'm still trying to wrestle through. <laughs> mm, no, I think, well, and the court's still trying to wrestle through it as well. So that's really, really yeah. helpful. Um, faith and confidence. I have heard a lot of people, you know, somebody sticks a microphone in somebody's face and, you know, they ask them to uh, respond to, react to, I'm going to use the word failure of the Uvalde um, law enforcement to intervene in ways that, at least since Columbine, we have thought police would intervene in an active shooter situation in a school. Um, the word faith has been interesting for me to hear. I've lost faith in the police. I've lost faith in, you know, uh, our school system. The, the language of faith is at the forefront of this conversation. Can you talk a little bit about faith and confidence um, and maybe just your own reflection on, like, our expectations of what what law enforcement does when they show up. They don't just stand by. They they intervene, don't they? Well, I think that's the expectation, like you said, particularly uh, in the aftermath. If we want to go back to Columbine in 1999 or I guess the more uh, contemporary co comparison would have been the, the Sandy Hook uh, shooting in Connecticut just uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is the the reality in which we live that these these shootings are at least possible, if not, you know, likely in our communities, but certainly possible given the given our current set of circumstances. And at the very least, I think people would say, look, if this is the reality that we have that we're living in, then the other component to that is that we have a forceful, strong police response to these scenarios as quickly as possible. Like that's the trade-off that we've decided to make and the trade-off that we're the most comfortable with. And if we go back to Sandy Hook, it was that kind of thing where police intervened pretty quickly in Connecticut um, to, uh, to, to, to neutralize the, the gunman in that, in that shooting. And so when you have a situation like this where there's still, frankly, a lot of information that hasn't come out or the information that has come out has been muddled or that hasn't been particularly well communicated, we think we know what happened. Um, but it's not particularly clear. I think that's where people start to get frustrated. 
and the people's tr- lack of trust, faith, whatever you want to call it. And I think you're right to focus on faith here. But I, I hear that in terms of just a lack of trust, lack of confidence. And all of a sudden that gets magnified because we thought we had an arrangement worked out. We thought we had a set of, uh, you know, a set of rules or a set of principles that would that we could rely on or look to. And when those fall apart, it's easy to become disillusioned. Uh, and that's part of a larger theme I think just with how people are relating to government in 2022, just a lack of confidence, a lack of trust. We've seen lack of trust in institutions. Uh, We've seen rather a a trust in institutions decrease pretty steadily over the past several decades. And so this is certainly consistent with that. Um, There is the interesting dynamic of applying this to law enforcement, considering the political connotations happening right now with regards to uh, police officers uh, responses to shootings, officer-involved shootings, etc. Um, just, I had an interesting conversation yesterday um, with a person involved in Vacation Bible School, very concerned um, that mm. you know during the academic year we think about places where children ga- are gathered together, you know, as schools, but in the summer, places where children are gathered together and where where targets are particularly soft. Um, would be, you know, churches or church camps having very, very public and open y'all come kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, vacation Bible school style things. Um, I don't want people to be fearful. I want people to, um, I don't want people to be disillusioned. Um, I want us to have a restoration of order where there is chaos. I want us to be people who are sowing peace but I also just recognize like the internal angst that parents and grandparents or other childcare um, givers have today in the culture. No, I think that's exactly right. And it's been about 10 years since uh, I, I uh, was involved with vacation Bible school at my church in Illinois. And in the midst of planning that, I don't recall any conversation about security no. or no you think I mean, you think vbs is vbs across the country starting in 15 minutes anybody having active shooter drills no yeah, well i don't know and nobody's so I think, doing you know, for, that i think i think for parents i think it's legitimate to ask they're you know as they're signing kids up hey you know is there a plan in place for this not not out of you know fear because it's and it's it's extremely unlikely but in the it is the worst case scenario and um, at the very least, it could, and I know churches are having conversations about security during during Sunday worship. I know those conversations are happening, and so at the very least, it gets the organizers thinking about these scenarios moving forward and say, okay, what would we do in this situation? Um, so I think that's a legitimate question for parents to ask. But my goodness, what a, <laughs> a sign of our times that this is this is a conversation we're having. Right. No. Absolutely. Well, and. And maybe it's a conversation we're actually coming kind of late to in terms of the conversation churches around the world have been having for a very, very long time. We have been um, insulated from these conversations because of the absolute relative peace uh, of the United States of America in relationship to this. Hey, let's um, let's take a very brief break. We're going to return to our conversation with Daniel Bennett in just a moment. I don't know. We got all kinds of things we might talk about. Hey, let's talk about the January 6th uh, commission public hearings that start, I think, today. Daniel's going to bring us up to speed. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Well, 
Well, apparently I was wrong. Thank you to each and every one of you. Now filling me in on Sheepdog Church Security, Agape, Tactical, Guardian Defense Plans. Um, uh, Yeah, wow, you guys are in the know, and your churches are apparently way up to speed um, on some of this. So um, maybe mine is too, and I just don't know. (laughs) So, All right, Daniel Bennett is with us uh, from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. What is happening with the January 6th commission and what changes this week? So the big change this week uh, involves having these hearings front and center in the evenings. And I know that's kind of a silly thing to focus on, but, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, when we talked about primetime coverage, uh, that's when people are home. That's when people have their TVs on. Maybe it's how they're putting their kids to bed or they're sitting around after dinner. And that's really what's going to happen with the January 6th commission uh, this week, is they're going to be holding these hearings and and, uh, unveiling information uh, during prime time in the evenings, uh, which is different, of course, than having it on during the day, you know, 10 a.m. on C-SPAN or, or, you know, if you have CNN or MSNBC on in the background. I think the hope for the commission is that they can try to uh, disseminate this information to a larger audience uh, in a more meaningful or impactful way. Uh, so that's what's happening with the commission. There's also been some news about uh, people who have been subpoenaed to appear before the committee, who have been, uh, you know, who have, have, have uh, denied those, those subpoenas, who have said, oh, we're not going to participate. But those have been ongoing for a while. But the big change right now is how they're going to try to deliver information to the American public. Apparently, these um, these live primetime uh, hearings are going to start at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time on June the 9th, which, by the way, is my birthday. So I will not be oh. watching. I just thought. Happy birthday, you know, Carmen. I mean, that's a my, great present. My one opportunity to work that in. Um, OK, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I it's interesting. It's notable. We'll leave it there for right now. So well, I got to say, I, I got to say really oh, no, quick, it is just yeah, very uh, I. I it is so unlikely that this is going to change people's minds right. or, or or get people. I mean, think about how much we've been talking Who's about this. Watch right, this is really the well, question. Rightfully, rightfully so, right? I mean, it was you know January sixth was a serious issue, um, but people have basically made up their minds on this question. And so like mm-hmm. you said, exactly, who's going to watch this? It's the politically interested and invested, right? The 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 passionate folks who observe politics, and of course, those people already know what they think mm-hmm. right so the people on the one hand you're gonna have people watching to basically reinforce prior assumptions you're gonna have people watching who are going to be attacking and critiquing i'm not sure this changes anyone's minds uh but it's almost like they're shuffling the deck and seeing what kind of new things they can have happen today is the uh 78th anniversary of d-day mm. 160,000 troops from Britain, the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere uh, landed on Omaha Beach in the French town of Colleville-sur-Mer. You know I'm mispronouncing that. Um, We often forget. I mean, like, right, we just, it's so hard for us to hold something in our memory for this long. But this is a day that is really meaningful. And when we look at it in light of what's happening um, in Ukraine, I think it's it's an interesting opportunity for us to talk about just how far we're willing to go geographically mm. and just how far we're willing to go um, socially and politically in defense of 
land that is not our own. Yeah, I I am not uh, a, a history buff. I enjoy reading about World War II. I've done that for a long time. Most of my grandparents served in World War II in different capacities. Uh, mm. Not not in not in France, but but in the European theater, um, it is always such uh, an emotional and impactful thing to reflect on Jan or June sixth, nineteen forty four, mm -hmm. to see mm -hmm. the images, to see the pictures, uh, just to try to you, you, the the photos, the aerial photos couldn't capture couldn't even capture the entire armada across the channel. Just just the investment, the planning, the sacrifice, the courage that took place um, was just unprecedented, I think, in our country's military history. Like it, it was it was incredible. And I think it still remains the largest amphibious landing in the history of the world. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. No, I think um, that's exactly and right. So, we're, we, my wife and I were talking last night. We're trying to figure out ways to talk about this with our children, youngest is six. Um, so trying to figure out a way to talk about this in a way that doesn't involve showing clips from, say, Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, which might be a little too intense for mm -hmm. them. Um, but you're right. Uh, it does it does uh, make it make one think about these are the commitments that we made uh, during World War Two, 80 something years ago, almost 80 years ago. Uh, is there anything different about what the way the world looks now, I think you could make it a, a good case that as tragic as what's happening in Ukraine is, it's different than the Nazi regime marching across Europe. But still, it does get you to think about what types of investments are we willing to make globally to uh, maintain prosperity, freedom, whatever you'd like to refer to in the future. And would we be willing to do that again? I think that's another good question is, would we be willing to do that again in another set of circumstances? Wasn't lost on me in this like uh, jubilee weekend mm. um, for the queen. She would have been 18 mm -hmm. on this day. On this day, 78 years ago, she was 18. And I'm just like, I mean, she is old, right? She's 96. And, and it's extraordinary that, you know, she's, as well put together as she is doing what she's doing. But like her, she has an active memory of this day. Right. And I just thought that maybe today would be a good day for each of us to like consider the oldest person we know in the world, whoever that is, mm -hmm. whoever the oldest person is that you know, and reach out to them today and ask mm -hmm. them what they remember. Mm. That's a great point. We have an historian on our campus uh, who interviews veterans uh, from different conflicts uh, and, you know, documents them, tapes them just for posterity. Uh, mm -hmm. And I was talking with him a couple of years ago, and he's almost I mean, now at this point, there's really no more World War Two veterans left. I mean, I know that they're still alive, but there's so, so few uh, for him to speak to. Now it's, you know, Vietnam and maybe some Korea. Um, so that era is almost gone. Uh, so like you said, yes, try to find someone who maybe has a memory uh, of that day uh, just to, you know, you have the official accounts, but similar to 9-11, like what were you doing on 9-11? What do you remember about that day? How did you feel? What were the emotions going through your mind? How did you process America's role in the world? Um, these are questions that you can ask anybody. You don't have to be a journalist to do it. And I have a feeling, yeah, most of your listeners probably know someone who is, who has some memories of that. So it's a good time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, Daniel, as always, thank you so very much. What a delight to visit with you. Um, 
you know, I, we look forward to talking with you as always again. But, you know, I don't know. Is it appropriate to say happy D-Day? I don't know. Honor yeah. D-Day? Let, honor, let's do that. <laughs> let's do that. Honor D-Day. Thanks, man. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. We'll be right back. So have you ever thought about the soundscape? That's what you can hear outside. So depending on the time of day, depending on where you live, um, maybe you are hearing crashing waves. Maybe you are hearing gentle rain. Maybe you are hearing, um, you know, the birds beginning to sing. Maybe you are hearing tractors in the field. What's in the soundscape where you live? Just consider that for just a moment. What is the soundscape? Maybe there's a train rumbling by. Maybe there are roosters crowing. Um, we don't currently have a full-grown rooster, but uh, I think we have four rooster chicks. So um, I think roosters are in the future, again, of the soundscape at the LaBerge home. Um, and I'm wondering if any of you who um, live in Minneapolis, we have lots of listeners in Minneapolis, so I'm curious to know, did you hear the change in the soundscape? Um, Minneapolis's oldest Somali mosque is now uh, the first place in Minneapolis where the Islamic call to prayer is being broadcast publicly, actually broadcast across a network of two dozen mosques in Minneapolis. Um, I'm interested to know if you um, are hearing that as it is being broadcast and um, well, what you're thinking about that. So let me know. You can always text me at 877-933-2484. Maybe also you are hearing uh, the ringing or the chiming of church bells pealing across the soundscape where you live. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.